May I speak in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do please sit down. Now, I don't know how many of you like watching films, and I don't know how many of you have ever seen Four Weddings and a Funeral. It's a bit of an old one now, but it's still worth watching if you go back and have a look. But in it, there's a scene at, unsurprisingly perhaps, a wedding, where the elder of a group of single but unmarried friends sends them forth out into the wedding reception to find the one the one that they are to marry. The problem is that relationships are not something that this group of people have ever been particularly good at, which is really the main point of the film. Anyway, the group head off into the party to see who they can meet, some with more enthusiasm for the task than others. One of them, Tom, sweet and really rather dopey Tom, seizes the opportunity. All he really wants is to find someone and get married. He has no grand illusions that it needs to start with a thunderbolt moment. He just thinks he needs to quite like the look of someone. And someone he does quite like the look of happens to be at the wedding. And he sidles up to her, trying to look all casual and natural and a bit nonchalant, with a glass of champagne in his hand, gets closer and closer. But she hasn't even noticed him coming. She's looking somewhere else entirely. And eventually he plucks up the courage to speak. Well, apparently an enormous number of people actually bump into their future spouses at weddings, he says, which is interesting. Oh, yes, she says. I met my husband at a wedding. Well, poor Tom hastily downs his entire glass of champagne and replies, Oh, good Lord, I seem to have finished my drink, if you'll excuse me, and beats a hasty and rather awkward exit. Now, you might be wondering what that's got to do with our readings today, but there is something in this scene that reminds me of that passage from Acts. It's about desperate hope and taking a courageous step. Because all Tom really wants is relationship and acceptance. And when you take a step towards that, there is always a very real possibility of rejection. Now, one of the most common things I've ever been asked since I became a priest is, how can we best share our faith with others? How can we grow the church and get more people in here day by day? Now, this passage from Acts, is an excellent one to talk about evangelism and another time perhaps we will and if you are particularly interested in what Philip does and how he speaks to that Ethiopian upon the road then we can talk about it but as I was writing this sermon this week I could not get that scene from four weddings and a funeral out of my head kept coming back again and again and this sermon had to go somewhere entirely different Perhaps you find sometimes that when you read scripture, you get an echo within you. Quite often we dismiss it because we assume that it's just us not concentrating. We have to wrestle our minds back to those words on the page. But sometimes it's really worth listening to that echo. Dig into it. Pay attention to the emotions that are in there. 
because you may well find that it gets you into the passage that you're trying to look at in a different way. It brings what's happening within you into conversation with the text, with God there as our guide. And I think that's what was happening for me as I was thinking about this passage. No matter how much I tried to keep my mind on that wilderness road, I was at that wedding with poor Tom and his failed attempts at chat-up lines. So what's that all about? What I realised is this. In the film, Tom and his group of friends spend their entire lives at other people's weddings. They're all at slightly different stages in their lives, and there is absolutely no one model-fits-all fairy tale relationship set out in that film. But Tom just wants to get married. But he is always, always at someone else's wedding, and never his own. He's on the outside, looking in, you might say. Not quite slick enough, not quite confident enough, not believing in himself that he will ever manage to impress or interest anyone. Elsewhere in the film, he says, well, I just always hoped that I'd meet some nice, friendly girl, like the look of her, hope the look of me doesn't make her physically sick, pop the question and settle down and be happy. He's outside, looking in. The way he tries to meet that woman shows his lack of confidence. A slight worry that you are not really welcome, you're not good enough, you're not really allowed. If you could buy a relationship in a shop, I think Tom might have his nose pressed up against the glass, but be afraid to open the door and go in. And when we read that passage from Acts, we are usually so focused on the activity of Philip, that the character of the man in the story becomes a supporting piece. It's really possible to read Acts and the narrative of the early church and focus on the successes, those big moments, the Pentecost moment, the deeds of power and the signs that are done in Jesus' name, the amount of people that are continually being added to the number of believers. And you can read Philip's story that way. He's appointed as one of the first seven deacons of the church, given the job of ensuring that food for the widows was allocated fairly. But when things come to a head with the arrest and the stoning of Stephen, the believers, including Philip, find themselves scattered in fear throughout Judea and Samaria. Philip is in Samaria, where we're told he performs many signs, casts out unclean spirits, heals the paralysed and cures the lame. And then he gets sent by an angel of the Lord to this wilderness road and the event that we read of today. It is an excellent example of evangelism by Philip. It is another baptism, another believer added to their number, another success. But it's another unnamed believer, isn't it? Because all the focus is on Philip. To be fair to the author of Acts, they are writing about the Acts of the Apostles. Its purpose is clear. But what about that man on that day, on that road? The only thing that we ever really know about him 
is that he is an Ethiopian eunuch. Luke, as he writes Acts, calls him a eunuch five times. That is his defining characteristic of him. Once he refers to his ethnicity as Ethiopian. And like so many people in biblical narratives, his identity has been lost to time. No one bothered to write it down. His personhood as an individual wasn't the point. And so he gets a broad brushstroke category, as if that is all he is. But if we look at it a little bit differently, if we dig below the surface, we might see something else. Because at its heart, this passage is about hope and courage and fear and inclusion. We meet this man on the road. He's been to Jerusalem to worship and is going home again. So we have got someone who has pilgrimed a long way. He is a committed believer in God. But his status as a eunuch means that he was unlikely to have been able to cross the threshold into the temple at all. He would not have been considered whole, been unable to enter the holy place. He must have known a thing or two about humiliation in his life such as he was reading about in that prophet from Isaiah. And so in his ponderings on the passage and his subsequent discussions with Philip, they're not academic theology. They are deeply, deeply personal, going right to the heart of who he was and what he was and was not allowed to do. Do you ever read something in the pages of the Bible and think, my goodness, that sounds like me? And then we often hold on to that passage and it's one that we choose to come back to again and again because it's, it's that resonance, that speaking of God straight to us. We ponder it deeply, often for years. We try to see what the connection is between us and the God that it reveals. The section of Isaiah that this man is reading from is all about restoration, the lifting up of the lowly, the making whole, the including and the drawing in of all those who have been outcasts, drawing them in into God's inclusive love. In other words, it's quite really what the early Christians saw as the work of Jesus and the pattern that he lived himself in his work until the painful conclusion of his life on earth. How much hope was there for the man on the road, bound up with the words that he was reading. Just possibly, just maybe, might that passage have been his passage? Might that promise of restoration, of inclusion, be for him as well? And the good news is that this passage points to Jesus and through him to God's radical love and inclusion. The man is returning from Jerusalem, standing on the outside looking in, with his nose pressed up against a metaphorical glass. And here, in the middle of nowhere, he hears that he is included after all. But when the talk turns to baptism, I think he's still afraid, because he has been given a glimpse of hope, a glimpse that could so easily be snatched away. What is to prevent me from being baptised, he says. 
depending on how you read it, it can sound like a rhetorical question when you just see those cold, hard words on the paper. Perhaps it's about an intellectual assent. There's no logical reason I shouldn't be baptised, therefore I shall be. Perhaps Philip's explanation has convinced him that this is the way he ought to go. But I think we can see that this is more. This is deeply, deeply personal to this man. So when he says, what is to prevent me from being baptised, I wonder if he leaves that sentence unfinished. I suggest we might finish it. What is to prevent me from being baptised like I am prevented from entering into the temple and where I am and always will be an outsider? What's the barrier now? And I wonder if when he orders that chariot to stop, it was almost a throwing down of a gauntlet to Philip. Go on, men. If God is as inclusive and loving as you say he is, you baptise me right here, right now. Hope, courage, and that ever-present fear of rejection. And the good news is that Philip baptises him because there is no reason to prevent it. And as we are here today, I wonder how many people are standing on the outside of faith looking in, desperately hoping to be included, desperately hoping to be thought good enough. I wonder how many people never ever get the chance to find out because they find the door closed in their face. I wonder how many people manage to push the door open only to find inside a church that is too willing to love them to a point. But eventually, they're not really good enough after all. And I wonder how many people come inside and hide who they are for fear that they will be judged and cast out by the very people that profess to love them. Does that sound like the radical and inclusive love of God to you? God so loved the world that he sent his only son, who said, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. What is to prevent anyone from being baptised? What is to prevent anyone from being loved? And what is it in our human nature that makes us stop making that universal love of God visible and available to others. I don't know. But sadly, all too often the church, the church with the big C, not necessarily this one, gets in the way. Because all too often we exclude, we judge, we disempower. You only have to read the news recently. You only have had to watch the panorama thing the other night to see that we have much to repent of as an institution in terms of abuse, racism, our historic attitude to women, our current attitude to sexuality. We say we are a people of hope and love. We must stop crushing, rejecting and refusing others. I really hope that one day we won't. And that as God has shown that love to us, all who wish to be included will be without any reservations at all. Amen. <laughs>